Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Friday. We've reached the end of the week in one piece. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk. Please look the program up on social media. On Facebook, the page is Peter Lewis Money Talk. On Twitter, you can find me at Money Talk R3. And my website is peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll also find my daily newsletter, which is full of business and finance news from around Asia. This podcast is on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and also on Apple Podcasts, where it's one of the top 10 most listened to financial podcasts here in Hong Kong. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. Here are the business headlines for the 16th of June. The European Central Bank has raised interest rates by 25 basis points and signalled that it will increase them again in July, warning that inflation is far too high. And in conjunction with raising the benchmark deposit rate to its highest level in 22 years, the ECB raised its inflation forecast and trimmed its growth prediction for the next three years. The People's Bank of China has announced a 10 basis point cut to its key policy rate in a move that highlights growing concern over the state of the economy. The medium-term lending facility was cut from 2.75% to 2.65%. That's the first reduction in 10 months. China's economy showed further signs of weakness in May, with officials becoming increasingly concerned by the slowdown. Retail sales rose 12.7% year-on-year, below expectations, but that figure equates to a seasonally adjusted decrease in month-on-month sales. Industrial production rose by 3.5% in May year-on-year, but this was below estimates for a rise of 4.1% and down from 5.6% growth in April. Investments suffered a broad-based decline. Investment in real estate slumped 7.2%, accelerating to the downside from a decline of 6.2% in April. And the youth unemployment rate for those of the population aged 16 to 24 climbed to a new record high of 20.8% from 20.4% in the prior month. US retail sales defied expectations for a contraction in May. Sales, which include spending on food and petrol, unexpectedly rose 0.3% month over month in May following a 0.4% increase in April and beating forecasts of a 0.1% decline. But new applications for US unemployment aid, which is a proxy for layoffs, remained at their highest level since November 2021 last week, coming in higher than economists had expected. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of GEO Securities, and Tim Huxley, Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO of Staten Partners. On Wall Street, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq rallied for a sixth straight day on hopes that the Fed's rate hiking cycle is nearly over. The S&P 500 climbed 1.2% to finish the session at a fresh 13-month high of 4,426. The Nasdaq Composite gained 1.2% to close at 13,783. The Dow added 429 points, or 1.3%, to close at 34,408. Thursday's gains brought the S&P 500 and Nasdaq to their highest intraday levels since April 2022. And from its October closing low, the S&P 500 is up 23% now, and it's also risen 15% year-to-date. The Nasdaq is up more than 31% in 2023. Treasury markets are not buying the hawkish dot plots from the Fed, 
which show two more 25 basis point rate hikes before the end of the year. Treasuries yet rallied and yields fell after the jobless claims report showed signs that the tight labour jobs that the tight jobs market is easing. The two-year yield was six basis points lower at 4.65%. The 10-year yield fell seven basis points to 3.72%. And the US dollar index tumbled 0.9% Thursday to a six-week low on a range of factors, including Jerome Powell's dovish press conference, a hawkish ECB, elevated jobless claims, soft import-export prices, US retail sales calling, and some mixed Fed surveys. The sell-off accelerated after the ECB rate decision, which hiked by 25 basis points as expected, but increased its headline and core inflation forecasts. And that was the biggest sell-off in the US dollar since early February. And the Chinese yuan saw huge intraday volatility. It reached a high of 7.19 renminbi after the announcement of the PBOC's MLF cuts. That's the weakest since November 2022. But it then surged higher as the dollar collapsed, ending the day in onshore markets 0.6% higher at around 7.12 renminbi. That was its biggest one-day jump since March. And in Hong Kong, stocks rebounded after they snapped a five-day winning streak on Wednesday. On Thursday, the Hang Seng rose 421 points, or 2.2%, to 19,829. The tech index soared 3.6%. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index, which tracks mainland Chinese companies listed in Hong Kong, surged 3%. Chinese property stocks rose after the PBOC interest rate cut. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite climbed 0.7% to 3,253. And this morning, futures markets are suggesting the Hang Seng will open 140 points higher. That's a gain of 0.7%. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our Friday morning guests. We have with us, as always on a Friday, Francis Loon, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. Morning, Francis. Good morning. And also joining us, Tim Huxley, who is chairman of Mandarin Shipping. Nice to see you again, Tim. Good morning, Peter. Great to be here. Thank you. Let's uh, let's just highlight some of this activity data uh, that came out of China yesterday. It showed further signs of weakness, and officials are becoming increasingly concerned by this slowdown. First of all, retail sales, they rose 12.7% year on year. That's in part because of base effects when compared with a year ago when lockdowns were in effect in Shanghai. But the figure equates to a seasonally adjusted decrease in month-on-month sales and shows that the reopening momentum is fading. China's industrial production advanced by 3.5% year-on-year in May, easing from a 5.6% rise in April and slightly less than market forecasts of 3.6%. It was the 13th straight month of growth in industrial outputs, but the softest pace in three months, mainly due to a slowdown in manufacturing activity. Investment in real estate fell 7.2%, accelerating to the downside from a decline of 6.2% in April. And China's surveyed urban unemployment rate stood at 5.2% in May. That's unchanged from April's 16-month low. But listen to this. The youth unemployment rate for those of the population aged 16 to 24 climbed to a new record high 20.8% from 20.4%. Francis, we thought the numbers weren't going 
going to be good? How, <laughs> how do they compare with your expectations? Well, worse than expected. I think uh, they really have to do some uh, 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 hiring program. Just uh, uh, not sending the young people to the villages and, and do farming. I think the, they have to urge the big techs like uh, Alibaba and Tencent to hire people or they send them to Hong Kong. Hong Kong needs mm. about 100,000 uh, people to fill vacancies. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, but this youth unemployment rate, that's a big problem, isn't that, it? That's it, a real drag on the yeah, economy. It, it, it's going to be a political problem if they don't try to solve it soon because they, they've been trying to uh, micro-treat the uh, 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 economy, like cutting interest rates, things like that, but they, they don't work. I mm. think you, you, you need some really drastic program to really tackle the problem. Tim, in, in your business, in the, in the shipping industry, you're sort of at the cutting edge of this, aren't you? You, you tend to see first slowdowns in trade and slowdowns in the economy. How, how does it look from your perspective, the state of the, the mainland economy? I think overall we were sort of our expectations with the opening up and the ending of COVID restrictions uh, they were a bit uh, a bit optimistic by all accounts. And, you know, that hasn't come through. So sentiment now is pretty negative. We are, you know, volumes are still increasing. The amount of cargo moving in there is going up. Uh, exports are down. And this unemployment figure, these are the key figures. I mean, I was talking to uh, the CFO of one of the leading container lines the other day, and they said, doesn't matter where it is in the world, you watch the employment data. If mm-hmm. people are employed, they're getting paid. If people are getting paid, they're going to spend money. If they're spending money, that means things have to be manufactured and things have to be shipped. So unemployment data is really important. And this, is, this doesn't look good. Uh, but we've got a lot of other things going on as well, uh, which slightly compound um, you know, these problems. I mean, shipping is suffering from interest rate increases. Uh, there's a fairly healthy order book of new ships coming in, which is if, you know, in bulk carriers, it's about 10% of the fleets on order. So that's sort of reasonably manageable. We've got a big replacement program. But the problem is we've had actually a couple of good years. Mm. Shipping had a good pandemic. uh, And there was a lot of money made. So ship owners are sitting on quite a lot of cash available but the problem is what you really hope is they don't all head to the shipyards most shipyards are full but ship shipping markets in the main you look back over decades they're killed by overcapacity, mm. and that is the risk we run and you're seeing and feeling this slowdown in exports from the mainland. We're seeing it in the figures now, aren't we, that uh, that exports declined um, sort of sharply. Is that being reflected in, in yeah. your business? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, container rates are down. Uh, and, uh, you know, and also it's imports into China. Uh, that's really significant because that's that's really the bellwether. That's what leads. If, you, if you're bringing in more iron ore and coal, then you're going to be making more stuff. So... <laughs> Then, right. then you can see that point. <laughs> then you export coming. more and afterwards. Then, absolutely. Yep. So, you know, the slowdown in construction, that has a huge impact on iron ore and coal imports. Mm-hmm. And that affects the big bulk carriers in particular. Um, Francis, yeah. it's been reported that, that China officials, senior Chinese officials, they're having urgent meetings with business leaders, mm-hmm. with economists mm-hmm. on how to sort of revitalize uh, the economy. And they're asking them in particular um, what can be done 
to try and generate growth, to try and get consumption uh, back up again. If you was in that meeting, what would you tell them? Well, uh, create some jobs program for the young people, especially the fresh graduates. That's, uh, there are maybe two million of them unemployed right now. Just uh, create jobs and government subsidize half the salary. That's what uh, some governments do anyway. Uh, I, I think they, they need to do something like this uh, instead of just relying on the economy to, to write itself in the long run. That's not going to work because the uh, political risk is much too high hmm. but i uh, i don't know whether they will do it <laughs> that's an open question they don't like putting money in people's pockets do they? they're, <laughs> they're not right. doing what western that's, governments have yeah, done or yeah, you know by giving yeah. handouts or yeah. consumption vouchers they just that, don't like doing that do that's they? that's right at least in hong kong they, the government gave us five thousand dollars each mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they need to do anyway yep and um these these interest rate cuts, 10 basis points here, 15 basis points here. Is this just tinkering around at the edges? It seems to me that yeah, it's not going to make much difference. It, it, it's like the China's real estate market. Uh, no matter how many interest rates cuts you have, uh, people ex- expect the property prices to go down. They will, they're not going to buy property. Hmm. So... So, 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 so you have to get to the core of the problem, which, which is the lack of demand. Uh, the real estate market is the really uh, the overboring of the property developers. You have to solve those problems first. Tim, if you was in this meeting and you was asked your ideas to stimulate the economy, restore confidence in the private sector, revive the real estate industry, what would you tell these government officials? I totally agree with Francis that getting uh, the younger people uh, into work is critically important because that really sort of sets the tone for the mood of, uh, you know, the whole the whole economy. I mean, generational, uh, new generation coming in uh, gives people that sort of positive sentiment. But, uh, you know, are we going to be able to sort of uh, stimulate demand if that demand just isn't there? I mean, mm. you know, we've got too many new properties and everything in China uh, and have people actually acquired enough stuff uh, you know do we actually all need another Tesla or, or whatever so are you actually going to be able to stimulate that demand what is it that people actually need I mean there are all sorts of crises I mean, we know we've got a food crisis I mean and and with the I mean the war in Ukraine is having an impact on so many different areas of of the economy and I think that overall um, that's uh, I referred to it earlier about sentiment. Uh, people at the moment they just don't feel good. I've never felt more uncertain about making an investment in any particular sector at the moment. Really, and so okay. the easiest thing to do, and it is making a decision. The easiest thing to do in many respects is to do nothing, mm. and that does not really help stimulate the economy or drive jobs. That seems to be what a lot of businesses are saying, and you see it in the figures as well, in the fixed asset investment numbers Mm -hmm. and elsewhere. Businesses just don't seem to want to invest um, at the moment, which is a sort of a bit of a damning indictment of the the state of the Chinese economy, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I think it isn't just... I mean, China, obviously, is critically important in shipping. I mean, China accounts for about 50% of global seaborne trade Mm. in one form or another. So... It's absolutely vital, but you you just don't at the moment have, as I say, that confidence for anybody to actually go out there and commit. And with the higher interest rates and everything, because if we look back 2015, 2016, we had a really bad shipping market. Mm. But 
we had low interest rates. Now, you've got earnings today at, at or below what they were then, uh, but at the same time, you've got much higher interest rates. So it's pretty tough going for everybody out there. So one, of, one of the things people have been saying is that what they would really like to do, the Chinese government to do, is to try and ease up on this central command and control economy where companies are so directed <laughs> into doing certain things that they lose the ability to be entrepreneurial, to develop, to try uh, new things. It's really stifling innovation and that in turn um, stifles growth. So companies are saying, you know, and particularly private companies, because if you look at the difference between the performance of private companies, which is 80% of employment mm. on the mainland and state-owned companies, massive difference. Private uh, companies really feel quite depressed at the moment. Do you think, I mean, I know it's one of those things that's sort of got a very big political element yeah, to it definitely. as well, but is, is that going to be the solution? Will it happen? Well, I, I doubt that they can do it because they want to put the party into everything. They want to, the party to be paramount. And if you listen to the senior officials, they uh, talk and they always say the party this, the party that. And uh, I, I, I think the Chinese government tried to put a uh, Communist Party official into uh, uh, Volkswagen, and Volkswagen threatened to pull out of China completely. Mm. And only then they stopped it. But at uh, Alibaba, Tencent, every other company, they have a communist party of official there so that stops the company really thinking yeah. about the decisions we take rather yeah. than being in the best interests yeah. of shareholders or of the company yeah. they're more in the interests of you know the political requirements from from beijing yeah so definitely they, they they want to appease the central government more than anything else because they don't want to do anything that the central government does not like and getting fined mm. and that's what happened to alibaba so this regulatory sort of crackdown <laughs> this is, is really... overkill. Mm. What do you think, Tim? Well, I don't trust what you're saying. Just let it run like Hong Kong. Well, well, well. Look, look at Alibaba and Tencent for 20 years from yeah. from from 2000 to 2020. They let them. They gave them a free reign. They do any, anything. They do everything. Uh, they they become the third and fourth largest listed company in the world. And and after that, you know what happened? Yeah, it, I mean, I think we all know. Uh, I mean, prosperity—that uh, uh -huh. sort of keeps everybody happy, and mm -hmm. uh, that rules out social unrest or anything mm -hmm. like that. I mean, you know, let's not go into that sort of specific area. But I think that um, yes, you have to give companies a free reign and not interfere with them, and let you know. Go back to Margaret Thatcher. You know, the market mm. is what it is, and you've just got to let that run its course. We are in a downturn. Downturns happen. You do not have consistent growth for decades on end, mm -hmm. and you need that adjustment. And as a result, you know, the cream rises to the top. Uh, the, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the stronger, the better-run companies, mm -hmm. the companies that have got a good position, have got good products, yeah. good marketing, mm -hmm. they will rise to the top. And I think that, you know, yes... I think 2024, we should see a bit of a rebound yeah. as a bit of stimulus that will come through and that will help. We have reduced interest rates coming in at the end of the year. We hope that would all help. And then you will see uh, a lot of these companies that are strong, good, strong management, decent products and, and you know, good presence in different yeah. markets. They will rise to the top again. 
But right now, we need government action in China because the uh, the youth employment is going to be become a political problem. I, I absolutely share your view on that. That's that's one that really does need to be addressed, and we've seen this happen uh-huh. in other countries. Uh, uh, you know, Arab you, Spring was caused by yeah, youth let's, employment. Let, let's really hope that they can actually address that. Uh-huh. But you know, you have to look at it. I mean, I'm. You look at the UK, uh, for instance, again, there we have this massive influx of new graduates coming out of universities. One of the problems there, though, is that everybody was able to go to university. Yeah. And now their their expectations are so much higher. Yeah. So in many ways, we're actually producing too many overqualified people with degrees in subjects that are not relevant. I mean, I don't think there are so many sort of yeah, useless that, degrees being dished out in China uh, uh-huh. as there are in maybe the UK. But that's a problem with China right yeah. now. <laughs> well, so there's there's too many graduates is is really the I, problem. I, I think that, that is one of the problems. The problem is though, once you've got them, yeah, you, can't, <laughs> you can't get rid of them again. You can't, so take, you you can't, can't send take, them back and say we're taking your degree away. So. You can't take away a degree, but I mean, uh-huh. you know, when you sort of see, I think it was a university in Glasgow giving a degree in Rod Stewart studies or something. <laughs> I mean, yeah, let's just try and keep everything relevant and yeah. make sure that people come out. And make a contribution to the world. I'm signing up right now. <laughs> but maybe are we being maybe a bit too gloomy? I mean, if if we look at it, the, the economy is still growing. It's still on track to um, achieve five percent for the year, or it can still achieve five percent for yeah. the year. Maybe yeah. it's not quite on track. But... Uh, Peter, you're absolutely spot on there. We've still got growth, mm. and it might not be the spectacular growth we've had in the past. But I tell you. I'm a lot happier to be out here than I would be sort of being mm-hmm. in Europe or, or the States where I just think there are some really fundamental problems and a political system that is more focused on the next election and keeping yeah. the jobs yeah. of the politicians uh-huh. rather than here we can actually take a slightly longer term view mm-hmm. and address some of the structural issues that we've yeah, got. Yeah, that's, co- mm-hmm. that's, that's really a quite good rest, uh, observation. <laughs> and, and what about consumption? That's the thing that uh, officials seem to be most concerned about, isn't it? Getting mm-hmm. consumption up. The retail sales numbers, well, they were 12.7%, but the only problem with that is that you're comparing it to a terrible time a year ago when Shanghai mm-hmm. was in lockdown yeah, and you, you, right. it can't do anything but sort of rebound and if you look at it on a seasonally adjusted month-on-month basis retail sales are now declining so i suppose the concern is that was really almost the only functioning part of the economy um, at the moment because exports have have slumped uh you're seeing investment declining so how how big a concern is that what can the government do to try and get consumption back up well, I think one of the biggest problem China is facing is that the richest one, uh, uh, 100,000 people in China all want to get out of China and get the money out. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is a really major problem because they, they, every one of them is a billionaire. And if you take the money out of the economy, you're mm-hmm. losing a lot of consumption. Mm. I think uh, I think what, what the government better do is trying to uh, soothe the anxiety of these rich billionaires <laughs> rather than the ordinary people. Really? So you think that, <laughs> uh, that, that should? But, but it's not politically. That's very difficult to do, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's not very uh, difficult. It's a very touchy subject. I don't know how how you mm. how you can uh, placate these uh, billionaires. 
Well, if you, I saw that survey. It showed that mm. uh, that China's got the most number of millionaires uh, leaving now the the De- country. Definitely. Whereas yeah. a com- country like India, although it does have people leaving, it creates far more millionaires than yeah, those yeah. that actually that actually go. So, but, but then India's coming back from a slightly lower base. I mean, mm. China sort of shot ahead in its uh, economic development, and so yeah, I mean, I'm a great believer in the Indian economy, and I'm sure that, that will. Uh, continue to produce plenty of billionaires. But I think, you know, I agree with Francis, you've got to keep your uh, key people who are the entrepreneurs who have actually built these companies mm-hmm. like uh, Tencent and Alibaba uh, and all of these others. But at the same time, you've got to balance it with making sure that you are lifting mm-hmm. uh, other people yeah, the uh, out people. of poverty and getting sort of the graduates mm-hmm. into employment because I mean that's your future yeah, and, that's, and right. that's also where you can have the real tensions Remember, yeah. and there's a lot more of them as well yeah actually Tencent and Alibaba actually last year pledged 100 billion yuan to uh, to invest in social programs I think they can use the money now just to create jobs for the youth let them do whatever clean the streets or whatever give them some pay there is this big contrast, isn't there, where here in Hong Kong, we're looking for workers. We're almost yeah. pleading for people to mm. come to Hong Kong. Mm. Um, and there on the mainland, you have this surplus of sort of unemployed people who are, who are doing nothing. You would think there must be some way of sort of reconciling um, that. Well, where does Hong Kong fit into all of this? We had these numbers, 10 million arrivals in Hong Kong now uh, for the first five months of the year, although that is about 40% of where we were pre-pandemic. Um, mainland people made up about 80% of those coming mm-hmm. uh, to, to Hong Kong. Where do you think Hong Kong fits into all of this between global growth slowing <laughs> and the mainland slowing? I'm, incre- I'm, I'm pretty upbeat, actually, having seen a lot of things going on in Hong Kong and having had a lot of people beginning to come through Hong Kong again uh, from overseas. Yes, the majority of our visitors are coming from the mainland. But if you get the sort of long-haul visitors, which is still very much reduced, and you look at uh, some of the traditional busy business hotels they're still running at very low capacity Mm. but people are coming here people are wanting to engage with people people are talking people are talking i was talking to somebody on monday and they were saying i think we should actually relocate our office to hong kong and you think away we haven't had that for three years Mm. so these are there are there is still a really positive vibe about this is the great place to do business Mm. and especially if you want to do business in China. Let's not get too depressed, guys. We really, you know, the numbers don't look good. But the bottom line is, is China and this part of the world is still going to drive growth. If I was a, being a 28-year-old sitting in gloomy Europe or whatever, uh, mm. the opportunity to come out here... Uh, you know, you'd grab it with open arms, and I would re- would say that to anybody now. And even today, you would still do that. Even I mean, today, you know, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I mean, good. things have changed. I mean, you know, you do actually need a better skill set you did when than when I came out here. <laughs> better language skills for sure. Uh, but uh, no, this is still uh, where I believe that there is a huge opportunity. Uh, will. You know, different industry. Yes, sure. And, and you've seen it's coming back with people in, in, who moved to Singapore are now saying we might relocate back to Hong Kong. And you know, <laughs> that that's, I, I didn't expect. I thought we'd lost that for good. Yeah. But now there are uh, a lot of people actually saying, I mean, costs in Singapore. I mean, Hong Kong is still just, 
in my view, it is still the best city in the world to live in. Mm. Uh, what wow. do you think, Francis, for well, Hong Kong? That's, that's really nice to hear <laughs> because we lost so many people to Singapore already. Yeah. So we, we'd love to welcome them back. I, I think the important thing is create more jobs for the youth in China. Just just bring them in and let them work in the restaurants and hotels and because they, yeah. they, they need the most people. I think that is definitely the case of we've got chronic shortage of people in the hospitality sector in particular. Mm. But uh, importing people from mainland China, there are a lot of hiccups there. I mean, you know, it is in incredibly difficult and expensive to resettle in a new city even mm-hmm. if you're just transferring within the yeah. greater bay area mm-hmm. uh you know it's still a big upheaval yeah. and, and we've seen that and it is difficult to integrate into a new a new city mm-hmm. uh, and especially if you're in one of these yeah. jobs i mean it's you know it's a job but it's pr- it's not a particularly well-paid job yeah, so it's i think imported labor from the mainland you, know, it's, you have to pro- provide housing for them. Yeah, I it's, think that's um, an important thing. It's not really the ultimate solution. Yeah. And you've got to train them as well, and haven't you? For, for some of these jobs, you can't just put someone in a bus and ask them to start driving it. You, you've <laughs> got to train people to, you know, to do some of these jobs, even Quite. if you know, we want to be yeah. a, a crane driver or wh- whatever it is. Mm. And that's all going to take time, isn't it, as well? But, you know, yeah. we talked about the number of graduates coming out. Now, does a graduate from a university in China, do they want to be a crane driver? And that's it. You've got to manage but, people's expectations. And if you look at it, I mean, a lot of people coming out of university, their expectations and their sense of entitlement is so much higher than it maybe was in the past. And that has got to be managed better. But, but now blue-collar jobs are paying better than white-collar yeah, jobs. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so they, they have to change the expectation. So where's the government going to find all these people that it's talking about bringing in in certain sectors where there, where there are shortages? I mean, they, they've got some quite high numbers for, for those sectors. If, if they don't come from the mainland, how do you persuade people to come from Canada or the US or Europe <laughs> to come here? I have absolutely no idea. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's going to be a real, a real struggle. Uh, and yeah, this is going to be an ongoing problem, and it will fuel inflation. Mm. Wage levels are going to go up. Mm. When you know what you have to pay, yeah, housing somebody's... is going to go up. Yeah. Uh, housing is the biggest problem in Hong Kong. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you same. have to have build, build dorms for them. You have to house them, just like uh, put them in the that land tower. I mean, people have got a better. If they if they're going to move to Hong Kong. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's been the same as it always was with everybody who's come here, and we're all migrants in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people do have an expectation. They come to Hong Kong for a better life, and yeah. living in a dormitory on Lantau is maybe not what they actually expectations were. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. only a stopgap measure anyway. Yeah. Well, look, I didn't want to be too gloomy today because I knew the data was going to be bad, but I found some good piece of data for, for Hong Kong to ask you about. Mm. The Hong Kong Trade Development Council Export Index, it's risen to a two-year high. Wow. Um, it's at 47.8 in the second quarter. That's an 8.8% rise. It's the second quarter now of improving business sentiment among Hong Kong exporters. Five of the six sub-indices also uh, improved there as well. Sentiment towards Asian, Japan and mainland China also improved. There was one little cloud, and that is that concerns over economic risks are rising. The majority of respondents, about two-thirds of them, recognise the risk of an economic slowdown or a recession in their overseas markets as the biggest challenge to their export performance over the next uh, three months. But nevertheless, Tim, this is it's, it's good news, isn't it? I mean, this is a forward-looking um, sort of indicator. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, although you ask people, what are you exporting from Hong Kong? And I'm, you know, we don't make a lot of stuff here. We're, uh, we're re-exporting, aren't we? <laughs> we're re-exporting. So, but any any growth in trade figures or whatever, I mean, yeah, we're, it's the trauma of the last three years, mm-hmm. I do sense, is gradually receding. There are certain scars which are going to be born for many, many months to come. But definitely, uh, we're getting back our... Hong Kong is getting back its mojo, for sure, in all areas. Um, and so I think that, yes, those those figures there, that, that's at least one piece of positive news. I mean, if we can keep things moving in that direction, then mm. I have every confidence in Hong Kong. But... Our economy is so dependent on the mainland that really developments there are going to be fundamental to the prosperity of of Hong Kong going forward. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) We really uh, depend on uh, Chinese exports going through Hong Mm. Kong. So, Francis, what do you make of all these interest rate decisions this week? We've now got an interesting divergence. We've got the People Bank, Bank of China cutting interest rates. We've got the Fed on hold, although they did say that, uh, you know, they're expecting two more rate hikes this year. We've got the ECB raising rates and saying they're going to have to do it again next month um, as well. This is rather um, an odd divergence, isn't it? Definitely. In, in Europe, they still haven't tamed this inflation. Because, they're behind the curve in Europe, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, they, it's the Ukraine war. I think they can get over it. But uh, I, I think they manage manage it much better in the U.S. I think at least gasoline prices is coming down. Uh, the biggest problem is that the rents are not coming down yet. So uh, only office rents are coming down, but home rents are not coming down. That is a that's that's the one key. Uh, component of, of the CPI, so I think uh, may, maybe people were uh, betting on the U, uh, uh, the Fed uh, not raising rates again. Mm. I think many people are thinking the interest rates have peaked in the US. That's why you have the, this uh, rally in the stock market overnight. But they've been fighting the Fed all year, and all yeah. year the markets have been wrong, haven't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, the market has been much stronger than expected, anyway. But I mean, you, know, you again. I turn to China. I mean, it's really it is so important to the global economy, and they've got uh, lower interest rates. You haven't got the inflation problem that the rest of the world's got, but still they've got these fairly dire economic problems mm. coming through. Is there a quick solution to that? I'm not 100 percent sure, mm. but uh, it, it's it, there is this, as you say, the divergence uh, between these economic issues we've got out here and what's going on in the West. Uh, and, you know, will there be significant events? I mean, yeah. obviously we're, we're watching very closely what's happening in Ukraine and the knock-on effect that has. Uh, will there be something that is actually going to sort of give a really positive feel uh, that uh, we have begun to turn the corner? You know, these, as, as I said right at the start, the... Um, uh, the, the positive nature of when lockdowns, etc., eased in China, uh, we maybe over-egged that a bit. And it, it hasn't turned out, and the growth and the return hasn't been as strong as we expected. <clears throat> but I think that's because for so many years, we always looked at this sort of stratospheric growth rate in China. I mean, you know, 
<laughs> most countries in the West, I mean, they'd be delighted yeah, yeah, to have really China's right. growth rate. Yeah, mm. right. And China's inflation rate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do you think inflation is under control in the, in the West? I mean, it's no, off its highs, yet. isn't no. it? But it's still yeah. higher, way higher than their target. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, it will take two more years to reach the 2% inflation rate in the US. Mm. Because you have a structural problem. With, with the rents and things like that. And so it's difficult to take it. But people have also changed their approach. I mean, people now, I mean, if you look back at the, the good old days of recessions in the 70s, I mean, people didn't have so much debt. There was less household That's debt. That's the thing, isn't it? And, you, know, you, you look at the way people's mortgage rates are going up in, in the West, in, in the UK in particular. I mean, these are crippling. And, uh, and people are, and you know, wages are not, even though wages have been going up at quite a high rate, they're not matching these uh, increases in certain household costs mm-hmm. like accommodation, food, mm-hmm. all of this. This is really painful for a lot of people and they don't have the reserves, the savings. And you know, it is so much easier still to borrow money. Okay, well, look, thank you very much. It's great to hear your thoughts yeah. this morning. Really nice uh, discussion there. Have a great weekend. Thanks yeah. for coming in. That's Tim Huxley, who is chairman of Mandarin Shipping, and Francis Lun, who is the CEO of Geo Securities. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Australia. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Now, we had some employment data um, out of Australia earlier this week, which was really very sharply surprised to the upside, didn't it? Employment in Australia surged by almost 76,000 jobs to 14.10 million, easily beating uh, market forecasts. It was the largest uh, gain in employment since June 2022. It looks like Australia is in the happy position of creating quite a lot of jobs. Yeah, very uh, very surprising number. We did have a bit of a softness in April, so it was a bit of a rebound maybe, um, so maybe a, a little bit of a, a reflection of that. Um, but most um, fascinating was that the majority of those jobs were full-time jobs, which is always a stronger indicator of employment uh, in the labour force market. Um, participation rate was slightly bigger as well, so people um, – uh, feeling like the market is still very tight when it comes to the labour force. And as well, you've seen um, uh, wages um, you know, being pushed up, particularly for the lower paid workers in Australia with some of the Fair Work Commission um, putting up uh, uh, wages across that sector. So all of that points to a, a, a sort of fairly resilient economy, but at the same time probably potentially one that is going to continue to be fighting inflation a bit harder mm. uh, than maybe some other economies. I suppose that there's what that's the one downside to this, isn't it? Because employment is one of the key metrics that the Reserve Bank of Australia looks at uh, when it's deciding on interest rates. So presumably these strong employment numbers raise the chance that the RBA could hike rates again when it next meets in July. Yeah, and I think that's probably the story out of this labour force is that, yeah, we're seeing, I think, on the ground. And, you know, if you talk to... You know, in, in our space, you talk to headhunters, you talk to, you know, you, you see some reflection of real time. There is some softening of the labour market. It's certainly loosening up at some level. But clearly, as a lag indicator, it's still pretty strong. So the Reserve Bank will be looking at that. Um, as well, you're going to have, uh, as well, migrant uh, numbers are 
boom booming in the next uh, 12 to 18 months, likely to probably add pressure to the labour market there. So that, in that sense, the Reserve Bank a little maybe see that this is the peak of the, the positive in the labour market. Um, against that, of course, you've got higher energy prices, you've got wages going up, um, probably ahead of productivity. Housing prices have spiked again a little bit, you know, at least turned positive. So on those factors, the Reserve Bank are probably thinking we've still got some work to do. Now, if you then look at the level of, of, of relative interest rates, Australia at 4.1%, the US at five and a quarter, um, uh, Europe at four, uh, UK at four and a half, there's probably a little bit more room for, for Australia to raise rates, even on a relative basis. So I suspect the Reserve will be looking closely at another hike in the in the coming months. I, I suppose if the RBA looks overseas for some guidance to, or looks at to see what other central banks are doing, their heads are going to be spinning this week because we've had in the space of three days uh, the People's Bank of China cutting their interest rates, uh, the Fed staying on hold, although um, the policymakers there on the FOMC were indicating maybe two more rate hikes this year and then we've had the ECB actually raise them and and make it quite clear they're going to do it again um, in July. We're getting an increasing divergence aren't we between what central banks are, are doing now? Well, I think it's yeah. The couple of things. So, if you take China's case, you know, the economy is not really kicking as uh, as they had hoped, um, and so I think that you know they're they're going to try to accelerate growth and activity through the domestic side through some policy moves. So that's probably a bit of a surprise that they haven't really bounced out of COVID as much as they expected. And I think for US and Europe, I think we're sort of heat, heating towards the terminal rates of where, you know, we see the peak in the cycle maybe in terms of uh, short-term interest rates. So in the US, they're probably ahead of the, the mark, so they're hitting to that pause level. I thought it was a bit of a hedge bet from the Fed. Um, you know, they did pause but then sort of took it back with two hikes, you know, potentially back in the in uh, the later part of the year. I was just having a look at the numbers. I mean, the, the inflation numbers are better in the US than anywhere of the developed economies in terms of trend. They've actually come off. The PPI numbers are really quite soft this week. And against that, some of their activity numbers, like the Philly Fed and uh, and activity indicators, have shown that the economy has slowed. So they're probably in slightly better shape. So five and a quarter looks about the terminal rate maybe in the US with maybe a bit of move either way. In Europe, it's 4%. And as you quite rightly mentioned, uh, the ECB were quite clear to say that they're not done yet. So what's the terminal rate for uh, for the uh, European Union? And the euro area is probably you know, maybe 50 basis points from here. Um, so from an Australian perspective, circling that back, we're at 4.1. Historically, Australian rates would probably stand at a, at a premium to US rates historically. Mm. So there's a big gap. But I would suggest, you know, the terminal rate in the in the Aussie is probably yeah fifty to one hundred basis points from here, depending on how the economy performs. So, yeah, it's a conundrum. Uh, but I think what you're seeing there is that towards the end of a cycle or towards the peak of a cycle, you start to see this disparity come through. The ECB, they're behind the curve, really, aren't they? Because although everyone's focusing on US inflation, what we shouldn't forget is that Eurozone inflation is actually higher um, than it is in the uh, than it is in the US. So presumably, the ECB, out of all of them, has got further to go. Yeah, we said six point one percent, and you know, if you're targeting two percent, two to three percent as as trend, then they've got a long way to go. Um, US, on the other hand, is heading back towards the, the full handle in terms of inflation. So, yeah, absolutely. So what did the ECB, they forecast 5.4% this year, inflation. 
three percent in twenty four and and only target two percent by twenty five so rates are going to go higher there to uh, and they're a bit behind it uh, relative to u s uh, and probably stay higher for longer and the against that is the European economy probably is underperforming relative to the u s uh, technically you saw recession in euro area driven by Germany so um, there's a slightly different picture in Europe versus u s uh, in terms of relative economic performance I, I, the worrying thing I think was from from what uh, Christine Lagarde said and from the ECB statement was that as well as raising interest rates they've also raised their forecasts for headline inflation and core inflation and also downwardly revised uh, their expectations for economic growth it, it's not a very good mix is it right now no I think that the but the clear message, I think, from the ECB was that inflation is the target. You know, they have to get inflation down, and I think this is really reflective of of language that central banks need to use. And it's something here that the Reserve Bank hadn't communicated exceptionally well in Australia about the need to be pushing inflation down you know, aggressively, and therefore the implications of that is actually to reduce demand and potentially push economies into recession. There's no choice. And the choice is that if you want to get inflation down, then you have to slow demand, which means economic activity can go into reverse for a period of time. I think the communication around that's got to be clear, and I think the ECB were really quite determined not to let the US interest rate hold have any you know, uh, flow-on effect into Europe. So I think the messaging was pretty tough, and uh, it's no surprise that when you're raising interest rates aggressively that you're going to slow growth. It's really about trying to get that landing, that soft landing, we talk about that all the time, and U.S. seems uh, so on was present be presumptuous, but it's almost like it's working a little bit in the U.S. right now. The the, the U.S. decision, the Fed decision, it, it was a bit of a hawkish hold, wasn't it? Because although they left rates unchanged, um, the dot plot was revised upwards. So now you've got uh, the FOMC basically expecting two more rate hikes um, before the end of the year, two twenty five basis point rate hikes. Do do you believe that? Because the markets are sort of um, are rather sceptical about it, aren't they? Well, the equity markets are, are running hot, right? Mm. Uh, if you look at it, uh, 21%, I think the, the S&P year-to-date um, growth, NASDAQ 36%, uh, even the Dow's up 16 um, So the equity markets are uh, probably a little ebullient uh, in regards to that particular outcome. The data's a bit mixed. You know, you saw Empire Manufacturing um, data in 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 the US, it you know, was growing, whereas the Philly Fed index was was you know worse than expectations. These are two good indicators for economic activity in the manufacturing side. Retail sales are you know 1.6% year on year versus an expectation of 1%. So that's relatively positive. So I think right now it's it's the data is a bit mixed. Um, the employment data is still you know the uh, labour force is still fairly tight there, even though anecdotally you're seeing a lot of job uh, uh, job degradation. So I think it's still a bit of a, a bet, and I think the equity markets might be a little over-optimistic as to where the Fed is uh, trending. Um, one thing I think you can say for sure is that um, the forecast of lower rates into the new year are probably unlikely. Mm. and that rates are going to stay higher for longer. Well, they've, they've priced that out now, the markets. Well, you know, at one point at the beginning of the year, they were saying more than 100 basis points of rate cuts by the end of the year. They've priced that out, but now they seem to be saying, we don't believe that there's going to be two more rate hikes um, this year. And I'm wondering what the Fed is trying to achieve with this sort of one-month pause by saying, we're on hold for a month, but it's quite possible rates are going to go up again next month, and they're going to go up twice by the end of the year. What, what's the sort of aim of that? 
Well, that's about managing expectations because one thing about inflation, as we always talk about, is we don't, it doesn't want to get entrenched into expectations. So, you know, the fight's not over uh, in regards to inflation, albeit a you know, much stronger picture in the US right now. And I think the, the Fed feel that, okay, let's see how the data plays out because some of the indicators they're seeing are lag indicators versus lead indicators. The lead indicators are showing the economy has softened, activity has slowed. Some of the lag indicators still show some strength particularly in employment. So I guess they're probably saying, right, we just need to see if these lag indicators have the impact and we start to see the feed through that we're expecting. Um, terminal rate of around five and a quarter is about where they were expecting um, and maybe a little higher. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think they just don't want to, to well, unfortunately they haven't had much success, to be fair, because the equity market's bounced so hard, strongly. But uh, they want to taper that expectation that it's um, we've reached the peak um, and so I think that messaging was pretty clear to say look hey you know we're pausing but that doesn't mean we're we're, we're finished. Jerome Powell was quite optimistic in his uh, in his press conference uh, the other day he, he seems to think there's still this path to getting inflation back down to two percent without having a recession or the kind of sharp downturn and job losses that we've seen in the past do you think he's right is the data supporting that view? Yeah, right now you 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 could sort of you you could see that um, optimism being rationalistic. It's you know it's not just a, a a bit of media spin. I think there is some sense of the U.S. economy has still got some reasonable strength, resilience to it. The labour market is still relatively tight, also we're seeing job losses. The banking crisis, which sort of was not really a banking crisis from a credit perspective, it was more a um, a liquidity crisis in amongst those specific banks around deposits. So that hasn't flown through yet. The debt ceiling has been uh, resolved for the, you know, so that's no longer something in the news. Politics is not going to play out aggressively in the US over the, you know, even though it's always in the news, the election's not till next year. So in that sense, I think there is some pause that, you know, that, that the Fed could potentially navigate a soft landing in, uh, for the economy. Um, but like economics, it's not an exact science. In fact, it's arguably not a science at all. Um, you know, things uh, we cannot uh, prepare for and not plan for are probably ahead of us. So right now, I think you, his comments aren't unreasonable. Toby, thanks very much indeed. Have a great weekend. Great to talk to you. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Sam Favre, CEO at Mandarin Capital. And with a view from mainland China is Brock Silvers, CIO at Kyan Capital. Have a a great weekend. Money Talk 